and welcome to Cinema Joes, where three average Joes discuss the significant topics of movie culture. My name is Alex, and I'm joined here today with Noah. Hi, Noah. Hey, Alex. How you doing today? Good. A little bit sad that we are sans Justin, but otherwise got very good. Yes, that's if you if I'm starting out an episode, you have a pretty good clue that our fearless leader, Justin, has taken the week off. Unfortunately, he is busy creating art and therefore could not join us to discuss other people's art because those who can't do become critics. <laughs> that's uh, according to Birdman anyway, um, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> I was thinking Jack Black from School of Rock, but OK, Birdman, fine. All right. <laughs> Uh, yes, Reopen there's a that wound. weird, weirdly enough, there's a lot of like films that feature critics in a very poor light. I don't know what, what that is about. I don't know. But in any case, <laughs> would you remember, do you remember Tom Hanks when he was on the interview circuit for cloud Atlas and he said his favorite part of the whole movie was when he gets to throw a critic to his literal death? <laughs> no, I don't remember that. I also don't remember that in cloud Atlas, but there's a lot to remember about Cloud Atlas, um, including the oh. fact that Disney's was what they called movies, and it looks like we're headed to that uh, sooner than we thought. Um, now oh that my Disney God, you're owns right. Fox. Uh, but wow. anyway, that's oh. not what we're here to talk <laughs> about today. Today, we're here to talk about Us, which is a dystopian future Ourselves. of a different sort. Ourselves. <laughs> you, me, and I. <laughs> no, not you, me, and I. Uh, it's uh, We're here to talk about Jordan Peele's new film, Us, his follow-up to Get Out. We can get into that in a little while. First, we have to talk about what we've been watching. Noah, what have you been watching? Thanks to your recommendation, Alex, my wife and I both started watching Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, I guess about a month ago. It would have been about a month ago that we started, and we've slowly been working our way through uh, the first three seasons of the show, which are all currently on Netflix. Uh, the fourth season has not been completed yet, and we are over the halfway mark in season three, five episodes to go before the end of season three, and I love it so far. I mean, at first, I thought, oh, this is going to be a really smart, clever, um, sort of self-referential, a la Arrested Development style comedy show with all these zany out of touch characters. And in a large respect, that is what the show is, at least, especially at first, but it's become so much more than that. Alex, you were the one who refer re referred to it as one of, if not the best shows about like dealing directly with the, the topic and experience of mental illness. And every episode that I get deeper into the show only reinforces that for me. I mean, the show is very funny. It's very cutting. It's very smart. Um, it's very well written. I love the way that it uses music, especially in the sense that nearly every single musical moment in the show is, is meant for like a, a broad stretch of comedy, which I love. And they're all like very clear send ups to certain styles and, and genres. So when a new music will song will start, will start up, I'll be like, Oh my God, now they're doing this artist. Uh, but it really, like, it does not hesitate to strike deep at the experiences of having really uh, powerful, damaging, and at times almost uncontrollable uh, mental illnesses that can really ravage the self and by extension ravage your and destroy your relationships and your interactions with other people. Like, the show really, really 
uh, digs in deep on that in a way that is that that very much mixes the the tragedy of it with the comedy, which oftentimes are just two sides of the same coin in a lot of circumstances. And I think the show does a really amazing job of mining that. And I like how, you know, whenever a part of the show is set up as, oh, and now this has happened, therefore this character or these characters or all all of the people in the show are going to be okay. But then the next episode is, no, okay, this thing happened, but now life goes on and, and more things keep happening. So I'm I'm really really liking it so far. I I it's one of my new favorite shows, and I highly recommend it to uh, anyone who's not afraid to really look at some of the darker sides of the human psyche with really fun uh, satirical musical numbers mixed in. Yes, <laughs> with very like like everyone is is another level of oh wow they they really went there. <laughs> I think my favorite one from the third season is the one about Nathaniel going to the zoo. Because you just building up to it, you don't you know, okay, there's gonna be a punchline, but you don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and then it's just afraid about him going to the zoo and he's depressed. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he's depressed. Yeah, that's that's a funny one. I go to yeah. the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Cause it's and it's actually a song all about like how a certain type of man is cultured into not knowing how to handle feeling sad uh, yeah which is yeah which is really interesting and something that i think we could both relate to in different ways <laughs> and i just want to say the creative auteur behind this show is named rachel bloom and she is fantastic she stars in the in the show she is a writer on the show she helps write the songs for the show she sings she dances it's incredible how talented this person is if you're on the fence about whether to see the show or not you should at least check out her youtube page rachel does stuff which features all of the musical numbers from the entire series um and you can sample that and you'll get a sense for like the comedy and the humor and what the music's like and a little bit about the darker stuff um that is delved into that Noah was referring to because interestingly I think they really do use musicals as as funny as some of the musical numbers are some of them are also really devastating um, because they don't shy away from using that form to delve into the deeper parts of uh, our main characters subconscious yeah. as well which is what yeah. any good musical does so it's really it's one of those shows that just has everything going for it it you really need to let it settle for yourself I've I've recommended it to a number of people and some people three or four episodes in or like, I don't know if I'm on board with this. Uh, this girl seems crazy. It's like, no, yeah, she is. And like the show is actually about that, but it's not about like, Oh, isn't it nuts? How crazy it is. It's like, it really deconstructs a lot of the premises that it sets up and then it evolves from there. And I think that's important to know going in, which is nice because yeah. you might just be afraid of like, Oh, is this just a show about a crazy girl who like wants to date this guy? Cause that's kind of lame. It's like, no, it's actually not that it's, it's a show about that type of show in some ways, uh, which is really cool. Um, and one thing that I also wanted to pick up on from what you were saying was just it. one of the things that's so great about the show is that it lets characters grow and evolve and change over time. It lets their circumstances mm -hmm. grow and evolve and change over time. And it shows the way that their problems change and their problems sometimes don't change when they're forced into new situations. And it mm -hmm. really just explores that tension between like who we are and who we want to be and how much our environment can help shape that and how much 
we use our environment to insulate us from the truths about who we are. Uh, and I think that, that it just, it's very smart about that. And it's really cool because yeah. a lot of the times, especially with TV shows, there's this impulse to keep things somewhat stagnant. They don't want characters to grow too much. They don't want situations to change too much because of just basic kind of con constrictions put on the show, either from a budgetary reason or for creative reasons. And this show really lets people grow and evolve and change over time and then asks questions about why they haven't when they don't. Um, yeah. And I think that that's really cool because I just, I see a lot of my life in that specific dynamic mm. and that's rarely explored but that's yeah. the benefit of a tv show is that you can explore that over time i mean it is very much a show on its own very unique wavelength and it's definitely it's one of the shows where i could definitely say as much as i love it there are plenty of people who would not like it just because they would not be able to approach the film or sorry the the series on the terms that the series sort of sets out for itself uh, like I said, from the first, based on the first few episodes, I thought, oh, this is going to be sort of like an Arrested Development style, like super, super smart self-referential comedy, which it is, but in a different sense. It's not like a joke a minute, um, which much of Arrested Development is. So it's sort of you have to you have to appreciate the series for what it's trying to be on its own terms, and if it's not your style or like one of one of the many genres it's listed as is cringe comedy. And that's very, very apt because there are many, many moments where the film goes straight for the cringe. If you're not able to handle that sort of stuff or it just makes you uncomfortable, it might be hard to get through this. It might be hard to get through it. <laughs> but so. it's less of a cringe comedy than something like The Office or or something like that. Like it's not that's not its yes, primary that's motivation. True. It's it's more of like an emotional cringe comedy. It's not mm, like, oh, mm, that's so mm. awkward. It's more like, oh, no. Why did you just do that? You know, like where you just feel yeah. terrible for the person <laughs> because they're blowing up their life. Not like, oh, that was such an awkward situation. <sighs> like, you know, mm. so. Um, yeah, but, that, that's a good point. And most of all, it's just really emotionally earnest in a way that I think a show like Arrested Development or The Office, especially the UK Office, just isn't at all. Like there's there's kind of a hard cynicism to those shows that's not here, which is really nice. Mm -hmm. And and that kind of transitions well into what I wanted to talk about this week, which is a film that is actually very emotionally earnest and honest. And it's called uh, Gloria Bell. I don't know if you know about this. Oh, I've 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 seen a little bit about it. Haven't seen it, but I've I've heard of it. Yeah. So it's it's written and directed by Sebastian Lilio, and it is a American remake of his own film from a few years ago called Gloria, which is ostensibly about the same character, but played by a different actress. And in Spanish, it's based out of Chile and where the filmmaker is from instead of uh, based in Los Angeles, where this American remake is. Uh, but this is starring uh, Julianne Moore. Uh, she is fantastic in this movie. Uh, it is such a beautiful, beautiful film. It is really grounded and emotionally sincere. And it's just, it's about this woman. She's divorced. She's in her fifties. She has two kids. They're both in their mid to late twenties. They're kind of like getting on with their own lives. Um, both of their, both of their individual lives are a little bit complicated, a little bit messy, but you know, there's no real like high stakes situations. There's not like a lot of high drama. It's much more just about like just going through the world and kind of trying to find yourself late in life. And, and that just makes it sound really trite and cliche. And I feel like there's been a lot of movies about like lonely older 
women trying to figure things out now that their husband's gone, now that their kids don't need them anymore. Like that feels kind of like a, an area which we've seen a lot from. I mean, I'm thinking of a movie like The Meddler with Susan Sarandon comes to mind uh, as a recent example of this kind of subgenre. This is kind of developing into a subgenre, but I think that this is a really good entry into that subgenre because it's just, it's a film that just has, it's very impressionistic. There's a lot of just like quiet moments that makes you really feel like you get an in, an insight into who this person is. It's very lived in um, as opposed to a movie where people are just like talking a lot about their feelings and things. And I love a movie that is has people talking about their feelings. Uh, you know, I'm a big Aaron Sorkin fan, so mm. I love a movie that's very talky. But this movie is just so experiential and, and the music in it. Just unbelievable. I was really impressed by the score, which was done by Matthew Herbert, who is someone that I was not really familiar with. Uh, but he, but that's because I sadly am not caught up on some movies that I've been meaning to see, which are two other films by the director, uh, A Fantastic Woman and Disobedience. Um, both of those films highly, highly thought of that I, both Sebastian Lilio films, and I haven't seen either of them, but now that I've seen Gloria Bell and I really liked it, I'm excited to see them as well. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's really good. I also should say John Turturro is in it as kind of uh, Julianne Moore's love interest, and he's just so heartbreakingly good in this movie. He just plays this man who's just kind of stuck in a, in a mm. hard situation, and he's trying to do the best that he can, and he's not doing a particularly good job mm. at it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's just, it's a really brave performance by Julianne Moore. She's very vulnerable in the film. She's just kind of like lays it all bare, both physically and, and emotionally in ways, um, that you just don't see from a woman of her age. Yeah, I just I just highly recommend it. It's one of my favorite films mm. that I've seen so far this year. I think uh, everyone should check it out. That's, uh, again, Gloria Bell. And it has just a really fantastic ending. It's one of those movies where just like the end just kind of like is a showstopper in the best mm. kind of way. Um, I haven't seen the original film, as I said, and I'm curious to see it now to see how it compares because it's just interesting that a filmmaker would remake his own work and it'll be interesting to see what he changed and what he didn't and and how the piece feels. Have you seen any of Lil- Lilio's work? I don't think I have. Not that I'm not that I'm consciously aware of. He's really he's an exciting up and coming filmmaker. I mean, mm. as I said, like between I mean Gloria when it came out a, a couple of years ago got a lot of good reviews, got a lot of positive attention, and then he went straight into Fantastic Woman, which of course he won the Oscar for for best foreign film. Um, and Disobedience came out last year and and was considered very a very mm. strong entry. Um, so yeah, he's he's building a a really cool a career for himself and I and I listened to an interview with him recently and he was talking about what his ambitions are and he says that he really wants to get into sci-fi which I think is pretty cool because he said Ooh, that he feels nice. like there's just not enough emotionally intimate sci-fi films out there and I would mm-hmm. agree and I would love to see that from him so nice Now we'll move into our review of Jordan Peele's Us. I well first first before we get into Us, let's just start out like I loved Get Out. It was my it was 
my second favorite movie of that year, uh, I believe. It was like, if Call Me By Your Name hadn't come out, then it would have been my favorite. Uh, but that was a stacked year for films in 2017. Uh, I thought that it was so funny and exciting and smart and well-constructed and had so much, in, so many interesting observations about, about race and society. And, and it was just excellent, great performances. What did you think about Get Out? Get Out was my film of the year that year. And that was, that was a mix of things. I mean, it was one of my favorite movies of the year. It also, it was, one of the movies that felt the most important and that I think was the most uh, impactful in both an immediate sense. Uh, like it really was, it, it was one of a trend of horror movies that I think really sort of broke out of just being something that only horror film fans were seeing. And it was one of those films that everyone was seeing and talking about. Yeah. It made $179 million in the domestic box office. Which yeah. Like relatively huge. speaking, relatively speaking, it was really profitable um, it netted Jordan Peele uh, an Oscar, which, holy crap, did he deserve it. <laughs> yeah, and it turned him into like a media mogul, basically. Like, I mean, and it, we should say in addition to Us, which is his first film that's coming out after Get Out, he also uh, is the executive producer of a new Twilight Zone series, which starts hmm. in a week or two for CBS All Access. He has a uh, genre HBO series in the works coming later this year. Uh, he's got, he executive produced Spike Lee's Oscar winning Black Klansman, uh, last year. So he's, he's kind of become a little mini empire off of the success of, of Get Out. So, and I think it's well-deserved, but that really sets the stakes for this film that's coming mm. out now, which is his follow-up. Like that's a lot of pressure, um, and a lot of expectations to put, what, especially that yeah. he decided like he could have done anything and he chose to not do a Star Wars movie, not do a <laughs> Marvel movie, like not like do a DC film. Like he wanted to stick with the horse that brung him and do another original social horror thriller. I recall him saying that he had a whole series of like horror as social commentary film ideas in mind. So yeah, but I think that it's pretty brave that he decided to do that mm -hmm. instead of trying to cash in on uh, something that would be a little bit more safe and a little bit more mainstream as a follow-up or going the other way and trying to go like to a straightforward yeah. like Oscar Beatty kind of film like he really stuck with his roots one thing I also want to say about Get Out was in addition to all of the external stuff the film itself was also one of those films that was just immediately impactful in terms of the I ideas and moments and shots that it introduced that uh, so far look like they're going to endure as you know, some of those signature scenes or images from a film that just resonate beyond the film itself. Like Daniel Kaluuya strapped to the chair, uh, staring in horror with tears falling down his face. Uh, the concept of the sunken place, which, you know, references to that have started popping up everywhere. Like not just. Yeah, within... it was a very, it was a very memeable film uh, for sure. It had yeah. definitely a significant cultural permeation. Uh, which is which is hard to do in this very fragmented culture that we currently live in. It doesn't happen a lot anymore. That makes a lot of pressure for a follow-up film. And yeah. so I guess um, I'm curious what you thought about it. Uh, but before I ask you that, I want to be a little self-indulgent. <laughs> All right. And uh, <laughs> read from my uh, Letterboxd review because I just – there's no other way that I can get this out there. And I just want to put it on record and then I want you to respond to it. So this okay. is from my first – the first uh, part of my letterbox review. We are what we fear the most. That is the idea at the center of Jordan Peele's excellent follow-up to his 2017 debut film, Get Out. 
The darkness that lies inside of us all is the thing we fear the most, and so we project it onto others. People we don't know. People who have some imperceptible or superficial difference, which makes them so nearly us, but falling just short. That these people live just outside ourselves within this uncanny valley makes them perfect vehicles for us to project our inner darkness onto them. By externalizing that darkness and inserting it into these others, we deny them of their own humanity, filling in the gaps with the worst bit of our own humanity instead. Now that is outside of ourselves and living in another, we can crush it, destroy it, and rid ourselves of our nightmares, these things we hate and fear about ourselves. And yet, to destroy, we must channel our inner darkness, conjuring it just long enough to rid us of the other, while validating that this darkness does in fact reside within us and has all along. That is the brilliance of Us, one of my favorite movies of the year. So you're saying you thought it was okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying I liked it a lot. Right. I'm curious to get your reaction to that. Obviously, it's impossible to talk about this without going into spoilers and everything else. So I just want to have like a free, open discussion about the film, about the themes. What do you think of my reading of the film? Okay, so spoiler alert right now, <laughs> basically. Um, so I basically wholly agree with what you said. There is so much... I think one of the, the key differences between us and Get Out is that Get Out ultimately had a very, very specific focus... Uh, to its commentary, to its social commentary, and to its messaging. Uh, one that I think, if you see the film once, is enough to to get the gist of the message. Uh, not that Get Out is not worth rewatching, but like it's it's a film where I don't think you have to search that deeply to get an understanding of what the the movie is getting at. Us, on the other hand, I think can be applied in so many ways and interpreted so many different ways that. I mean, even if Peel were to come out and say, this is my interpretation of the film, this is one of those movies where I don't think there is one single right interpretation because the the concept behind it, and if anyone who's watched the trailers knows that the basic gist of a movie is that doppelgangers of the main characters show up and start uh, trying to, to torture and murder the quote-unquote real people. And then the movie is the the whole the rest of the movie plays out. Okay, where do these doppelgangers come from? What are they? What's their goal? Why do they exist? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And this can be this is so open to to interpretation that I don't expect us to be as immediately impactful as Get Out in the sense that, like I said before, Get Out had very specific scenes and concepts and terms and images that were so immediately resonant. I don't think that us is going to have quite that level of lightning in the bottle impact that get out head, but I think it is just as masterfully made and just as fascinating in terms of a film and an artistic creation. And I think it, it provides even more fodder for endless debate over how you can interpret and apply what happens in the movie to our society. I think I was one of a lot of people who going into the movie, I thought, okay, this will be light get out in that the central horror concept is in some way a reflection on race. And in part it is, but not just that. Like there's so much more than that going on. My interpretation of the film was that it is overwhelmingly focused on class and on economic disparity with racial and gender and other forms of disparities mixed into that, but with the class and economic one being the main focus. That was how I interpreted the movie. 
Uh, but I know that there are some people who take that reading too, and there are people who take a complete, uh, completely different reading on the film. For instance, I have a slightly different reading of the film. I think that that class stuff is obviously a part of it. I think that that reading is a, a bit of a surface level reading of what's going on in the film, and I think it's accurate on the surface. Uh, just this idea of like American consumption and consumerism and capitalism and the way that what we do in our society has a cost and we like live a upper middle class middle class upper class lifestyle and we buy all these products and we consume all these things and we have this nice life for ourselves or even our version of a nice life the nicest life we can aspire to and meanwhile there are people in other parts of our country even right down the road right down the street right across the street from us who are struggling and who are who whose labor we are exploiting whether we realize it or not and whose le whose situations we are exploiting whether we realize it or not in order to have a good life for ourselves and we're not considering that and that is and and this movie kind of asks the question what if those things come home to roost what if those uh what if those people who we've been kind of taking for granted at the very least and taking advantage of at the worst uh, finally come and say, no, we want what you have now and we're going to take it. And I think uh, that is a very interesting analysis of the film. And I think that's definitely a part of it. But I think the more compelling thing for me was what's below that even, especially the ending of the film comes in, I think, and just and just throughout the more general idea of othering and the way in which in our society and in most societies, we other these people who are different from us enough even though in reality, there's no difference between us at all. There's superficial differences. As I said, there's just slight imperceptible differences sometimes. Like maybe you don't wear, wear the right shoes in school, or maybe you have a job that uh, society doesn't respect, or maybe you're of a different race or a different religion or a different uh, socioeconomic background. And so we put, we say you're different from us and we project all of this terrible things onto you and those things come from us they come from inside of us and and that darkness then in this film that darkness comes back onto us um in a way that is almost uh deserving in some ways given what these people have been through and uh yeah i think it's just it's hard for me to watch this film without seeing the theme of other as as a really profound component but i think Stepping outside of the themes of the film, because we could talk about that for a long time. I think we kind of, you talked about what you think the movie's about, I talked about what I think the movie's about. We also have to get into just like how well crafted this film is, how well acted it is, the direction is so strong. I thought the cast was uniformly excellent. Um, Lupita Nyong'o, of course, whom I abs I've adored ever since I saw her in uh, 12 Years a Slave, she... Well, it's hard to put into words how amazing she is, especially since she's basically playing two different characters. She's the main hero, I will say, and with while making very heavy air quotes. But she's also, uh, of course, the villain because she's playing her her doppelganger at the same time. Uh, that is such a heavy lift, but I find that she pulls it off perfectly. That's kind of funny. I think that the air quotes actually deserve to be put around villain, not hero. Um, but I do agree with you. I think oh, that okay, uh, she is excellent in this movie. She's so good at it. And it's and it's kind of silly because like at the end of the day, 
this is what acting is, and I get that, but a lot of the times, this is not what acting looks like, so I just feel exactly. like you need to call it out. But exactly. like, you literally, for like I personally kept forgetting that the same actress was playing both roles, because her physicality is so different, her manner of speaking is so different, and her just, her presence is so different, mm. and it just... It's really remarkable. And the same, I have to say, for Winston Duke, who I think he gets a little bit less of a showy role, but like the gap between his tethered person versus his main person is, I think, even steeper than uh, the gap between Lapita's mm. two characters. And uh, it, he's like unrecognizable. He's terrifying and just like guttural and just like, oh, like menacing. And then, and then in the other, in his more typical role, uh, he's basically just Jordan Peele. I don't know if you've realized this, Noah, but he is playing Jordan Peele. Like, I haven't seen this in interviews. I don't know if that was the intent, but I, it's impossible for me to believe that that is not the case because he is exactly Jordan Peele. Like, I've seen him in interviews. I know him from this TV show. He looks just like him. Like, he's wearing the glasses and the T-shirt and the whole thing. He sounds just like him. Like, he's doing a Jordan Peele impression. And it's like, what would Jordan, what would my life be like if it happened to me? Is like, I feel like what he's answering with Winston Duke's performance and <laughs> and it's really good it's a really good Jordan Peele impression I think <laughs> I think that's an interesting point I had a lot of fun with with Winston Duke's role although I did did you feel that there were times where his accent felt a little bit artificial well I mean was that just me no I don't think it's just you but uh it wasn't it wasn't that bad I wasn't super noticeable I mean I thought that he was doing a really good Jordan Peele impression most of the time so I could I didn't mind when it his true accent kind of slipped in and out a little bit no 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 it was a couple it was a couple moments for me where for the 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 Americanization like the the very American sound just struck my ear as okay that's someone really trying to put on a specific type of American accent like it was real. It was just the occasional sentence. It and this is not intended as a criticism because I adore Winston Duke and I love him in this role. I just noticed it and I, I was curious if I was the only one. But if if you didn't think it was a big deal, that doesn't matter. It didn't. It didn't jump out to me. But I mean, there was a lot of other stuff happening. So <laughs> I, I have to say, I get the sense that, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but with uh, Lupita Nyong'o's character, who um, are so the the. The the human or the the regular again in air quotes, uh, Lupita Nyong'o performance is Adelaide, and then the counterpart is Red. Red so this yes. dual performance, this dual performance that we get from Nyong'o, I very much feel is like when I think back over the past few years, uh, the the roles for actresses, especially for um, in a number of cases for older actresses. I feel that a lot of the most interesting and best and engaging characters and performances that we've gotten for uh, a lot of female leads or even like female uh, like female side characters have been in horror movies. Um, I mean, Lupita Nyong'o in this movie, uh, Catherine Keener in Get Out, whose performance I think was just as powerful and effective as Daniel Kaluuya's in the lead role. Uh, and then last year in Hereditary, uh, you had we had Tony Collette, and then a few years ago with the Babadook, there was Essie Davis. Like these were all really impactful performances. Where both the performance itself and the character, as it was written, really struck me and really stayed with me as a very unique, challenging, um, and very 
provocative and engaging role. Do you feel like horror is currently providing an avenue for really out there, powerful uh, female characters and performances that other genres are just not serving right now? Um, I wouldn't say that. I wouldn't say that horror is unique in offering f- actresses the opportunity to give show-stopping performances. I can think of many films uh, featuring amazing female performances that were not horror films. Just even mm-hmm. just uh, off the top of my head, like Joanna Kulig in Cold War is like a, a show-stopping kind of star-making performance. Okay. And, that, mm-hmm. and that's the furthest from a horror film <laughs> in a lot of ways. Um, but I think that you're right in to say that horror does give actresses an opportunity. Um, I don't think it's unique, but I do think that it gives you an opportunity. I think it gives all actors an opportunity because of the type of heightened form that you're dealing with. Uh, there's mm. a, and it gives people a lot of ways they can go with the material. And so they have a little bit more room to explore and experiment and kind of go big or go small. And, and that contrast can often be very interesting. And I think it's also just the case that, you know, there's a long tradition of female heroines in horror films, you know, dating all the way back to, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween, you know? Mm-hmm. So uh, it's definitely a storied tradition. Um, oftentimes it's not particularly, uh, you know, Oftentimes those roles are not great for women, um, but there has been over time like this, mm-hmm. uh, these examples of good roles for women. And I think the, the ones that you mentioned are definitely true. Uh, I kind of like want to brush back against your characterization as Lupita Nyong'o as an older actress um, since she's no, only no, no. That, that's 36 not years saying. old. Like, uh, <laughs> and yeah, no, 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 that's <laughs> sorry. No, let me I, I, I sort of I didn't necessarily phrase that well. I didn't mean exclusively. I mean, okay. uh, including. <laughs> I, I mean, including roles for for older actresses. I was thinking like all of these movies just sort of came to me in a rush and I was like, wow, these all either had tremendous female lead characters or in the case of Catherine Keener, like a genuine powerhouse of uh, a character who is not uh, the main character, but um, just as impactful on the film itself. So it was just it was just something that was bouncing around in my head, like the more well, I thought I about think- this movie. I think bringing it back to us specifically, I think Jordan Peele is just great at casting and giving his actors really meaty mm. roles. Like, I mean, if you look at what Elizabeth Moss and Tim Heidecker do in this movie, it's amazing. Uh, they're so great as like basic kind of upper middle class kind of rich, like, like suburbanites, um, on vacation. Mm. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's vodka o'clock made me laugh so hard. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> And they are equally What's as... What's the magic word? Uh, how about fuck you? How about yeah. I kill you? <laughs> and they're equally as amazing as these like crazy over-the-top campy villains that are terrifying and hilarious at the same time. And they have so <laughs> much physicality in those roles. And yeah, I thought it was like amazing. I think that they're so good. They're as far as like supporting roles that just kind of just do the most with the... <laughs> well, not with the least, but they do the most for sure. Uh, they yeah. are definitely up there. I could watch a short film of just Elizabeth Moss putting on lipstick like that. Like that was like unbelievable. <laughs> just like 20 minutes of just that would be great. <laughs> I think that's available on YouTube. Uh, I have to say the, the moment in the movie that like just absolutely killed me. Ophelia, call the police. Playing the police by NWA. <laughs> 
Yeah, that was a big moment. And then nearly, and, and then nearly the entire song plays out of the cor- over the course of what follows, which was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I I thought that was a little bit of a cheap joke, but my crowd really liked it. So, oh, I loved it. That's that that's what I want for my Peel movie. <laughs> I liked that they named it Ophelia. Also, I thought that was great because you know obviously it's an Alexa reference, but Ophelia is this like doomed female character in uh shakespearean literature oh, and so yeah that was like, all sorts that was all sorts of deliberate <laughs> yeah oh absolutely everything in this movie is deliberate <laughs> i mean come on but yeah i think it just and i we should also say the kids in this movie are really good they do a great job with like making you feel so connected to what they're experiencing this crazy situation mm-hmm. and they also do a great job of like maintaining kind of like the sibling dynamic even in the ridiculousness of what's happening like i thought that was nice like there's a couple of small moments between the two of them where they really feel like brother and sister even after like everything hits the fan mm-hmm. and that's i thought that was nice i thought that, like what this movie is so good at is just taking its time to establish these characters and establishing mm-hmm. their relationships to each other and to themselves. And it just really, really good. Like the first 30 minutes of this movie is just basically like a really intense episode of your favorite sitcom, basically. Um, <laughs> That's such a great way to put it. And that just pays off so well, because by the time the crazy stuff happens, you know everything you need to know about these characters. You are in, you are emotionally invested and mm. and they just use it so well from that point on. Like that's a solid foundation for all the crazy stuff that happens. Yeah. Yeah. I just I think this is an excellent movie. It's my favorite movie of the year so far. I think it's phenomenal. I think it's maybe not it's it's not I don't like it quite as much as Get Out. Uh but I think that it's an excellent follow-up and I have very few complaints. It's just that Get Out is like an all-time great film and it's like you know, that's like a really high bar to set, but this is close to that. It's definitely, yeah. it's definitely <clears throat> going to be in contention at the end of the year for one of my favorite films. And it's just really smart and sharp and interesting. Like, uh, I, I just really liked it a lot. What did, what final thoughts yeah. on us? Well, people, I, I think people should definitely not go into this movie thinking, okay, is it going to be as good as it, as get out and not go into it thinking, okay, I got to like sit down and, and compare these movies side by side. Because there were certain lightning in the bottle aspects of Get Out itself and the impact it ended up having where like it's just it isn't it would not be fair to expect any artist or filmmaker to like repeat that consecutively. Uh, Not that there aren't artists who, who pull that off, but I think it does this movie a disservice to how good this movie is to go into it expecting like expecting another get out or to like start comparing it to get out in your mind either during or after the movie. This yeah, is its I own film. That. It has its it has its own characters, its own themes. It is like get out in that it is very meticulously made. It has a searingly ridiculously good score that already I have two scores, this and John Powell's work on the How to Train Your Dragon series. I already have two scores that are quite likely going to be duking it out for like top spots in my best musical scores list. Um, And we're not even done with March. Us is great. It is doing gangbusters at the box office. It actually just it's the second highest grossing original film debut of the last 10 years, second only to Avatar, which it 
only an avatar only beats it by like six or seven million dollars, which is crazy. By, by it, original, you mean a film not connected to a franchise? That is correct. No franchise okay. connect. No franchise. No sequel. No. No nothing. Just a straight up original film. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's second only to Avatar in the last decade. It had well, this critic like yeah. the the projection on the box office was forty to fifty million. Some people were taking the over and saying maybe it'll hit. Around sixty million, it ended up going over seventy million dollars opening weekend. It's a huge, insane success. I think that's as much a testament to Get Out and the brand of Jordan Peele as it is to this film, particularly. But, uh, but yeah, it's just it's it makes me excited that this film will permeate to at least a somewhat of a similar way that Get Out did, uh, mm. and. And it also just kind of solidifies Jordan Peele as this blockbuster hit maker who's going to be with us for a long time to come. And I am excited by that. Yeah. And not a one hit wonder. Like that's that's the most exciting part. Um, I think that this is this movie is fundamentally different from Get Out in a lot of ways. I think it is equally excellent in terms of the the craft and the intelligence and the care behind it. Uh, and it is just as thought provoking and debate provoking. And I think it's just as much of a must see. And just the fact that Jordan Peele has just jumped right in from, you know, a serial comedy show into making two amazing, like genuinely groundbreaking horror films back to back. Holy crap. Like, please, yeah. I hope this guy makes movies for the next 50 years. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All yeah, right. Us. Well, so... Go see it. Go All right. Come, guys. Come see us. Yes. I mean, see go see us. us. Go yes. see us, watch it however you can, whenever you can, as often as you can. Yes. <laughs> yes, so in honor of us, I thought that we could talk about something that's been kind of in the back of my mind for a little while. And that's this question of, is it better for a film to go headfirst at a political or social issue? Or is it better to mask it in this kind of blockbuster horror action metaphor and embed it in there and try to like sneak it past audiences? And I guess what I'm thinking of is like a movie like uh, Do the Right Thing, which is very much confronts social and political issues head on. That's what that movie is about. It's about people interacting with each other, dealing with serious social issues. Mm. There's also a movie called Black Panther, which is a Marvel movie. It's a superhero movie. It's like got all of the trappings of those things. And if you just want to watch it and see it as a big fighting like action movie, you can. But if you want to think about it a little bit more, it's like a super interesting deconstruction of post-colonialism and responsibility that we have as an international community. And that's super interesting to see embedded kind of subversively in this like consumerist action Marvel mm -hmm. movie. And there's a lot of examples. Obviously, Us is an example like that. It's like it's there's a lot of deep social themes embedded in Us, but it mm -hmm. also works fantastically as just a straight up horror film that is mm -hmm. a crowd pleaser. So my question to you is, is it better to sneak these things in and get more eyes on it, even if not all the eyes are really paying close attention or taking things away that we want them to? Or is it better to just kind of confront people head on with serious art about serious issues? I'm of the opinion that you need both. And I I think there are filmmakers who there there are artists who are better at one than the other. Uh, I think there are very few that can do both. 
like you talked, for example, about Do the Right Thing. That is a movie that like it it has both its explicit and implicit themes. And I think part of what makes that such a masterful film is that it, it mixes both together. Yeah, um, but it's not I, a genre. It's not a genre movie. Like what I'm talking about are, yeah. are genre films that have social or political themes embedded inside of them purposefully. Because mm-hmm. obviously we should also say all art is political and comments on the society that creates it in some way, right? Mm-hmm. There's no no piece of art in the world doesn't do that to some extent. So what I'm talking about are pieces of consumer art, like a Marvel movie, like a horror movie, which are very embedded in their genre, but their creators purposefully are trying to use that genre to tell a metaphorical story as well, that's mm-hmm. subtext, versus a movie that is like a straight ahead drama or even comedy, but you know, that is not genre based that is dealing directly with issues head on, mm. not as subtext. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I feel that we have a need and, and, a, and a necessity for both in society because sometimes, I mean, on the one hand, I think uh, oftentimes you can get more like we as, you know, deep appreciators of film as art, you know, we can get a lot. We can sometimes get more appreciation out of a film that is much more subtle and indirect in its use of themes and trying to suss out uh, how the director, you know, squeezes in this or that reference or subject or metaphor. Um, like I get a huge kick out of doing stuff like that. But on the other hand, I have a very low opinion of the masses and a lot of people are just very stupid and will not listen to anything unless you scream it in their face at full volume. So sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need films and art that just smacks someone across the face. Uh, And like in the case of a number of Spike Lee movies, for example, Chirac from uh, I think three or two or three years ago, literally ends with Samuel L. Jackson screaming at the audience, wake up. Um, Sometimes you need that. Sometimes you need a film to just like jab you in the face and be like, hey, get up, pay attention. There's a big world out there. Uh, so I, I, see an, I see an importance and a need for both. And I, I'd rather not live in a world where I have to pick between one and the other. Like, does that make sense? No, it, it does. I'm not really asking, though, like, should we eliminate all other kinds? Like, you have to pick one <laughs> and then stick with it. What I'm saying is, what do you think conveys the message best? It, it's hard to say because the more subtle you are just by nature, the easier it is for someone to watch the movie and even maybe watch the movie and like it, but walk away completely oblivious to the larger points that the movie is is trying to make. Because here's why I'm asking, because I feel like a lot of people give creators who try to embed controversial topics in mainstream filmmaking a lot of credit for kind of getting these bold and exciting ideas like in underneath everyone's noses and like exposing a lot of people to them. Um, Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure if that's totally warranted because the point of that praise is, oh, look, you're letting people who would never watch a movie about colonialism, like really consider colonialism by putting Mm -hmm. it in a movie like Black Panther. Mm -hmm. But if they're the type of person who would never watch a movie about colonialism, then their antenna is probably not going to be up for post-colonial like social commentary in a Black Panther movie the way that these critics who are talking about it are or these academics who are talking about it are. And yeah. so they probably are not – most of the people who aren't seeing the movie that's straight up about colonialism 
aren't really thinking deeply enough about Black Panther to get those ideas. Mm-hmm. So and not to say that they're stupid or that they're ignorant. It's just they're not they don't watch a movie to like think critically on what all of these like messages and these deep analytical ideas are. That's just not how they're watching a movie. They're looking at it as a form of entertainment. It's a movie that is yeah. based on entertainment because it's a Marvel movie. And so we go from there. So how yeah. if they're not really getting the subtext that much, then do these people deserve credit for providing a film with a lot of subtext? Like, wouldn't their talent mm. be better spent actually making a more controversial piece of art that is more direct about what they're trying to say, even if it might alienate certain viewers who don't want to see movies like that? Or conversely, is there a benefit to doing it the way that uh, someone like Ryan Coogler or someone like Jordan Peele are doing it? Because maybe most of the people who are seeing these movies aren't thinking about the subtext, but some of the people who wouldn't have watched a more like mm-hmm. uh, like serious drama about these topics do like pick up on these things and think about these mm-hmm. things and it sets them on a path that they wouldn't have gone on otherwise. Yeah, no, I do. I think there is an inherent value in that in, you know, even if, if a movie or a piece of art just moves one or a handful of people to change their lives, um, that in and of itself is a value. And that, that gives, uh, that gives an added purpose to that art existing, even if it's just a handful of people. And yeah, just by dint of numbers, if a thousand people see a movie, you know, maybe you'll only have a couple dozen people who are really impacted by it. But if you have a thousand times that and you literally have a million people go see a movie, uh, you could potentially have, you know, whatever that original number of impacted people is and multiply it by a thousand, then you create an even even bigger ripple effect. Again, I feel that there's value in both. Like if someone makes a really powerful, effective, controversial piece of art and has to like push back against a lot of prevailing wisdom to do so. I mean, there's, there's no end of examples throughout history of art that in its time was derided and not greatly appreciated Right down the line ended up having a far greater effect than it had within the artist's lifetime. Sure. I want to I want to push back a little bit, though, on your like, I just want to have both because when we're talking about like all the films that exist, yes, you can have different types of films. But if we're talking about Mm -hmm. specific creators, they have to choose what type of movie they make and when they make Mm -hmm. it. And Mm -hmm. they often Mm -hmm. don't have the opportunity to do both. Like you look at someone like Ryan Coogler, for instance, his first film was Fruitvale Station. That's a very straightforward a direct film about police brutality and about the plight of young urban African-American men and the struggles that that community faces. And it's very head on. It's based on a true story. He went Mm -hmm. on to then make Creed and Black Panther, which embed a lot of that similar background, a lot of social, socio-political commentary inside of those movies. Way more people saw those movies than saw Fruitvale Station. But those movies are very big, very expensive, take a lot of time. They He has not made another film since Fruitvale Station that's anything like Fruitvale Station. So he had to choose mm-hmm. between whether he's going to do a big commercial film that he can put some heart and soul into or do another film like Fruitvale Station. And he chose to do what he did. Does any part of you wish that he didn't make that choice, that we weren't denied all of these other potential Ryan Coogler films that were more like Fruitvale? Mm. Or are you happier that he is like a woke Steven Spielberg now, you know? 
Um, I don't. I don't feel that I'm in a position to decide what what each artist should or should not do. Like, I'm happy to see great artists be successful and continue to make good art. But like, is it bad that like so? It feels like if Ryan Coogler, all things being equal, was coming up in the '70s, he would be able to make art films that tackled mm-hmm. serious subjects. And now, given the current standard, he's not. And conversely, mm-hmm. if like you know, if Martin Scorsese or uh, Terrence Malick were coming up now, maybe they wouldn't have a career. Maybe their films would be much smaller. Or maybe they would have to be making Marvel movies with embedded messages about, like, toxic masculinity built in there just so that way they could make Mm -hmm. their art. Like, is that... Do you think that it's a good place where we're at like is the balance okay yes it's good to have both kinds of movies but is the balance on a macro sense good uh, when we think about like specific artists that we might not be getting what we could uh, that that's a hard question i have no problem with people making bigger more mainstream movies if that's the vehicle that they need to get get important messages or themes across to a wider audience i think that that's it shouldn't be just that like that should not be the only way for great artists to get ahead but obviously i think we're not yet in a world where an artist could just make nothing but fruitville stations their whole career uh but that's i think that's a problem that goes way beyond just a a question of what's the better venue for uh making impactful movies does that make sense no it does i mean we did used to live in a time like that, though. In the 70s, that's mainstream cinema was that. Um, they were quiet dramas. <laughs> so, you know, it's not so much of a it's not it's not a question of progress in terms of we're just in a certain phase right now where commercial entertainment is the dominant form in movies. And so I think if you want to reach the widest audience possible, you have to do these sorts of things. And I'd be curious if the situation weren't that, if these people would still be making the same choices that they are. I think with Jordan Peele, I think he would. I think that he loves horror as an art form. He has spoken in depth about that. His films are filled with these love notes and these uh, homages to classic horror films. In the comedy film that he made, Keanu, his main character, made mock photo sets of horror movies. <laughs> so he clearly loves horror. So I think that he would be doing this anyway. Would Ryan mm. Coogler do it anyway? I don't know. I really don't know. I think what's sort of exciting about a service like Netflix, and you know, at this podcast, we rep Netflix. Uh, sorry to the haters. <laughs> Looking at you, Steven Spielberg. Um, but what's great about Netflix is that you can make a small movie um, with a big, with like potentially mm. like a big star or a big director's name attached. Uh, and if you release it on Netflix, it's going to get in front of millions of people and they're more likely to watch it because it's on Netflix mm. and it gets the big banner ad and people are just more open to being like, all right, we'll check this out. We'll watch it for 20 minutes, see if we like it. And so yeah. I think that's starting to change the game. Like Ava DuVernay is is being able to exploit that for positive effect. Uh, Dee Reese has been able to exploit that for positive effect. I think that a lot of people are starting to use Netflix in this way, which is great. So I think that maybe things are starting to transition to a point where Ryan Coogler could make the choice of making a smaller movie that could still be accessible to a wide audience. Mm. But I agree that we're not maybe right at that moment yet. And so maybe this is the best path. But it's hard for me not to think, 
what could be. I mean, I'm so glad that we have a movie like Black Panther or we have a movie like Us or Get Out uh, that is commercially entertaining and also makes you think critically because I'm going to go see a movie like that anyway and I like it when I can actually think about movies mm-hmm. on a deeper level. So yeah. it's I feel like these people are making that type of film much better than it ordinarily would have been. But yeah. it, part of me does worry that we're losing opportunities that we might not get back for other types of films that they could be making instead. So. I think I mean every era and every every market situation has its advantages and disadvantages. So absolutely, you know, there are advantages to a streaming site like Netflix, and there are disadvantages. So I, I think there will never be a perfect. We'll never live in a perfect artist utopia, um, as awesome as that would be. <laughs> it's unlikely to happen. <laughs> Well, we'll have to leave it there. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Noah, can you tell the audience where we could find you on the internet these days? Well, in addition to my work with Cinema Joes, my written reviews are on my blog at francenoir.blogspot.com. And uh, uh, you can also you can find me on Twitter at Media Thinkings and on Letterboxd at Media Thinkings, where, as I said, I just finished ranking all of the films of Tim Burton, except for Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Frankenweenie. Those are two movies that I just decided not to watch um, because I have to. <laughs> you're, you're I have to pay to out. see. Well, I have to pay to see both of them, and Pee-wee just isn't my thing. And no, it's I heard Frankenweenie is awful, so I just and I watched a lot of bad Tim Burton movies, and I just had to draw the line at Frankenweenie. So you know, uh, Tim Burton, uh, Tim Burton's worst movie, in my opinion, Dark Shadows. Terrible, terrible film. You can find out why hmm. on Letterboxd. Um, also, you can follow our co-star Justin at his website, cinemaverick.com, or on Letterboxd at Cinemaverick. And you can follow our show on Twitter at CinemaJoes. Also, you can do something cool, which is if you head over to Anchor, which is a platform that we are on right now, you can download the app or go on the website and check us out there. You can leave us a voicemail and we can listen to it and take your feedback and that'd be super cool. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts where you can uh, review us and subscribe. Um, And we're also on Podbean now. So if you like to listen to your podcasts on Podbean, you can check us out there as well. Uh, So for Cinema Joes, I'm Alex. I'm Noah. Good night. Hello. 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 We are. I mean, do you still count as American? Um, considering you're abroad, but abroad as in another country, not as in a colloquial uh, reference to women from the 1930s. <laughs> I think I've tortured that metaphor enough. I'll put down the bloody scissors and let's move on to our <laughs> next topic. Hold on one second. There's someone in the house. <laughs> uh, okay. That That's not creepy at all. <laughs>